Thank you, Danielle and team. And man, what a great, great old hymn that was. I love, because I grew up in church, uh, combining the great new praise music with the old hymns. It's it just, uh, man, it's like a throwback day every time that happens. Uh, you know, one, one, of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite people to pastor and to lead spiritually, or I should say two of them, are my kids. Uh, my son Christian, who's 11, my little girl Casey, who will be nine on Saturday. I love, to, I love to answer their questions biblically. I love to talk about the Bible with them. They were here with me this morning just after 6.30 a.m. As a matter of fact, if you look at that whole row of black drape right there from that corner all the way back to the sound booth, um, we had three kids this morning that were 11, 9, and 8 that put all that up this morning between 7 and 8 a.m. They, they were here serving and helping and hanging out. It's fun to kind of watch them you know, yell at each other and do it and drop it and do it right. But my son the other day, we, we were riding to football practice, and he asked, me a, uh, he asked me a great, great question that I had never been asked before. In all, in all of my years of ministry, I'd never been asked this question. He said, Dad, um, Dad, do you think there will be tattoos in heaven? <laughs> tattoos in heaven. Um, I figured that he asked that question because Danielle, and she probably doesn't want me telling you this, so... so um, Sorry, uh, but yeah, Dan- Danielle, uh, she's like, she's been meeting all these pastor's wives at conference we're, we're going to that have tattoos, and Danielle's like hell-bent on, on getting a tattoo, so she's always talking about tattoos and looking at them on Pinterest, and you know, men, if you want your wife to do something, have somebody put it on Pinterest, and it, it will be done, because she'll try it at least uh, one time, um, but he asked me, Dad, will there, will there be tattoos in heaven, and I gave him what I believe is the biblical answer. And you say, what is the biblical answer? We're, on the count of three, I want you to speak aloud your biblical answer to that question. W- will there be tattoos in heaven? One, two, three. Okay, so we now know who the Baptists and the Nazarenes are in the room because they all, they all said no real loudly. I said, you know, my, my answer was, Christian, I don't know. Uh, but the book of Revelation says that God will mark, physically mark the bodies of everyone who is a Christian in the end times. So maybe. Um, I don't know what it'll be. I don't know that it'll be like crosswire on, on, on a bicep or a heart on your chest, but maybe, maybe not. Probably doesn't matter. Um, and then he asked me this question. He said, uh, Dad, do you think people will have money in heaven? Do you think people have money in heaven? And I said, Christian, I, I don't know. Um, and I said, probably not. And he said, well, I think they will. So I think people have a lot of money in heaven. And I said, why do you think that? And he said this. It was, it was a fascinating answer, a fascinating look into the mind of an 11-year-old. He said, Dad, I think in heaven people will be able to have as much money as they want because in heaven they'll all do the right thing with money. And I thought, now that is an interesting thought. Let me ask you a question. Are you doing the right thing? in your life as far like is what the Bible says with your money. If there are two areas of major regret that I have from my 20s, and I'll be 35 here in a couple months, and when I look back at my 20s, you know, I, I got to 30 about five years ago, and I look back at my 20s and I thought, you know, I have, uh, I've really, I failed in two areas. Uh, and I got to 30 real quick. Like, I couldn't believe how quickly I got there. I got to 30 without a plan for much in life. I just kind of arrived and you know, I've never had an age where I've thought, man, I feel really old. But at 30, I realized, like, I am, I'm wasting time. And here were my two greatest regrets 
from my 20s. My marriage, how I handled my marriage. I do not believe I was a good husband in my 20s. I knew very little about marriage. You know, I got married at 21, and I didn't know how to be a good husband. I didn't really know how to interact with my wife. You know, Danielle will tell you, probably the first five to seven years of our marriage were extremely challenging because I was very immature, and and in addition to that, I just... I didn't know how to be a good husband. And I look back at my 20s and I think, man, I wish I'd have done better in my marriage in my 20s. And I looked at my 20s and I absolutely failed as much as you can fail with my money. My marriage and my money. If I had my 20s to do over again, I would manage my my marriage differently and I would manage my money differently. And as I have learned about both of those subjects, these two subjects have become great passions of mine, especially for young families or my generation. If you're, in, if you're into the age of 45, these, these are two areas I'm pretty passionate about because I've done them so wrong, and I have seen how life changes when you do them right. So I love to talk about them. And at our church, marriage, I mean, last February, my favorite series that we've done in a year was our series on marriage. And I absolutely loved what happened in the marriages in our church as we just looked at what a biblical marriage was, and we defined biblical marriage like Solomon did. We're in a biblical marriage. A husband and a wife are are described as uh, passionate lovers and best friends. And we talked about in our church how to become passionate lovers and best friends in your marriage. And this February, we're going to focus on marriage again. Our, Our February series this year on marriage is called Man Versus Wife. And we're talking about how to navigate the battleground of marriage. One of the things we're going to talk about is conflict. We're going to talk about how to fight fair because as I've just counseled and talked and ministered, uh, marriage is a big, big deal. But I have waited more than a year to talk about money for this reason. There's one thing that most people in a church never want to hear their pastor talk about, and it's money. Because there's a mistrust there between organized religion, between ministers, between money. There's this thought that all a church or a pastor or whoever ever wants is into your wallet, into your pocketbook, into your purse. And I've been real hesitant the first year of our church to talk about money because I have wanted to build, at least at our church, a track record of good stewardship. A track record of, listen, the only reason we take offerings are so we can run a good church, and the only reason we take offerings is so we can give as much as we can away. And if you've been a part of our church very long, hopefully you understand that at least our intentions financially at this church towards you are very, very good. But if you're a visitor, if you're a guest, uh, if you're a fairly new attender, if you've been burned by a church financially before, and the minute the church starts talking about money, you turn off. Here's the deal that I want to make with you this month as we talk about what we call biblical economics, what the Bible says about your money. Uh, Here's my deal with, with you, if you're new or if you're uncomfortable. We don't need your money. You don't have to give. I'm not going to guilt you. I'm not going to manipulate you. I'm not going to motivate you by telling you we can't pay for something or that we need something from you. We don't need anything from you. I just want to talk to you about what the Bible says about finances because we collect prayer requests at our church. Every week we collect prayer requests on the back of our little connection card. And we've had church now for almost 60 weeks. And do you know that every week... We've had someone give a prayer request about something going on in their life financially that they need help with. Single moms, people losing their jobs, people who are unemployed, uh, people who uh, took a demotion in their job, people who were sick and health insurance didn't, didn't do enough for them, 
people who were injured and found themselves in a bad way. We have a church that collectively is saying, I need prayer financially. And I believe we live in a world, and, and here's what I believe will prove this. Next Tuesday, not this coming Tuesday, but next Tuesday, more than 100 million Americans will go to the poll and they will vote on who's going to be the next president of the United States. And the vast majority of them don't really care about all the things that these two, two men have been fighting about at the debates. The vast majority of Americans are saying, who is going to give me the best financial future that they can? Who's going to protect me and our country and what's going on? Because we have a world that's, that's very concerned about what's going on financially in our world. And I would guess in this room in 2012, we probably have a crowd in here. If you're like my wife and I, this may be like one of the low points in the last decade of your life financially. Maybe making less with higher bills, trying to figure it out today, less savings, less retirement, less 401ks, more debt. Probably you're at the most, one of the more difficult times in your life and existence, just like my wife and I are. And we're always asking you, what, what are we going to do? Probably your stress, your fights in your marriage. Talk a lot about finances. So here's what I want to do. If you were to, to ask me out to lunch and say, hey, Christian, what does the Bible say about how to handle money? This, the next four weeks, is the answer that I would give you. Here's what the Bible says about money. And I want you this week to listen with an open heart, with open ears, and I want you to know this. On November 11th and on November 18th, I'm going to talk to you about what the Bible says about giving. If that makes you uncomfortable, don't come those weeks. I'd rather you stay here and grow and never feel obligated that I need to give than to get freaked out and never come back. Don't invite guests those days. Listen, the worst message in the world for a first-time guest to hear is a message on money. Just like every other church, all they want is my money. Listen, I don't want your money. We don't need your money. God has been very, very good to us at this church. But I promise you, the next four years of your life, regardless of who's elected in two weeks, the next four years of your life can be radically better if you will learn what God says about money and you'll begin to apply it. So you say, well, a church shouldn't tell me what to do with my money. You're right. Churches should not tell people what to do with your money. If there is a fee involved to be a part of a church, you shouldn't go to that church. If a church says, if you don't give this, then you can't be involved. You shouldn't be a part of that church. But God, who the Bible says gives us all things, God, I believe, has the right to say, hey, here's my plan for you. And like everything else I've ever preached on in this church, from marriage to parenting to spiritual growth, we're going to look at God's plan, and you can choose whether to apply it in your life or not. But I can tell you this, like everything else I've preached on, I think if you apply God's plan, I think your life will be radically different. So today we're going to talk about the biblical perspective on money. Next week we're going to talk about the biblical plan on money. And then two weeks after that we'll talk about the biblical purpose of even having money and what we can do with it to leave a lasting impact in the world for God. But today we're on perspective. So here's what I want you to do. Grab your Bible. Grab the, uh, we handed you a sermon note. It looks like this on the back. It says hi to all our first-time guests. But on the other side it has a place where you can take some notes and follow along. We should have given you a pen uh, when you came in. And today we study what I simply call biblical economics. Uh, our ushers are going to come down the aisle. If you didn't bring a Bible today, if you don't have a Bible, you can have one. They're going to give you one. We have been blessed to give away more than 300 Bibles since we started our church a little over a year ago. Um, if you don't have a Bible or you can't remember where your Bible is, put your name in the front of this one. This one's yours. Keep it. If you just forgot your Bible and you, need, you want one to read today so you can have it to, to fact check me and make sure I'm not lying to find my way into your pocketbook, Grab a Bible, and when you leave, just throw it on the, uh, throw it on the table. 
when you leave, and we'll give it to someone else next week. But for today, this is yours. Feel free to mark in it, write questions, uh, whatever you need to do. This Bible is yours as we study God's Word. And today we're in Luke chapter 16. And we're in Luke chapter 16 for a very good reason, because in Luke chapter 16, Jesus gives just a little bit of a soundbite on our relationship to money. Today is not about giving. Today I'm not going to ask you to give. Today I'm not going to tell you to give. Today, I'm not going to say, if you're not giving, here's what's going on. Today, I'm, I'm just going to say, from Genesis to Revelation, here's the perspective that the Bible paints of money, and here's what I believe. And the four areas I'm going to share with you, everyone in this room has some kind of tension in their soul with one of their four areas, that if it can be resolved, I believe stress will be lifted out of your life. I believe some order will be put into your life. I believe that... Uh, purpose and impact will be added to your life. So I'm just going to ask you with a wide open mind and heart, listen and learn the next month and see if your world isn't radically impacted by the way that God says you should view, handle, and use money. In Luke chapter 16 verse 10, Jesus talked about the place that money should have in our life. And here's what Jesus said about us and our finances. Whoever can be trusted with very little, I'm in Luke 16 10, can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and you'll despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Listen, I don't know about you, but there have been periods of my life, and I am in one now, unfortunately, when, when you decide to sell everything you have and you take all your life savings, which wasn't very much at the time, uh, and you put it all into starting a church and you guess at the minimum amount of salary you need to raise so that you can get through a year and then your guess is wrong and you find yourself like I have at 34, back in a little credit card debt again, you know, struggling to get by, you know, just living one day at a time, there are days when I feel like I serve American Express and Visa and Capital One and MasterCard, and I don't have all those, but you understand what I'm saying. There, there are days, months, times of the week where I look down and, and I feel like I make all my life choices based on what I owe somebody. I feel like my money's in control of me rather than the other way around. And God says when, when your life revolves around how you can make your money work for you. When you're serving money instead of serving me, you really struggle to grow spiritually. So my hope is that all of us will leave here with a plan as we move out of this month that maybe 2013, 2014, 2015, for some of us, it's going to take two, three, four, five years of plan to live within these, this element of biblical economics so that when we hit the next generation mark, whatever that is for us, we don't look back and say, boy, I really blew it financially, maritally, with my parenting, with my employment, that was a bad decade. My hope is that we can all say, man, this was a great decade because I got my life together in this area. Because we want to be good servants of God, we need to make sure finances don't rule our life. And if finances aren't going to rule our life, then we need to figure out what are the biblical attitudes, or, or I would even say, maybe a better word is the biblical themes towards money. What, what's the overarching biblical theme towards money. You know, when the Bible talks about stuff, resources, uh, what does the Bible have to say about money and finances? Four things it has to say. These are all big, big areas 
but I want to talk to you. We'll break them down, and we'll look at kind of a couple of these in the next few weeks, one at a time. The first is, is a word called stewardship. It's not a word that we use a lot in today's time, um, but stewardship, maybe a better word for stewardship is management. Uh, and this thought of stewardship is that, uh, that God gives us things um, that we're going to be in control of. And the very first human being, according to Scripture, that was ever created was given something to be in charge of. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can go back to Genesis chapter 2. If you don't have your Bible, it'll be on the screen behind me. But the very first human being, one of the very first acts of God towards humanity was to say, here's some stuff, take care of it. Everyone in this room has been given some stuff to take care of. A family, kids, a home, a rental, a condo, a, a car, a job, uh, kids. Everyone in here has been given some stuff that that we would call blessings until they turn into burdens and then they become baggage. Um, we, you know, we've been given some stuff based on the state of our life right now. We see them as blessings or burden or, or baggage. We've been given some stuff to steward over, to, to take care of. Adam was the first one ever created. Adam was the first one ever given stuff to take care of. And here's what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2. We'll read verses 4 through 15. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created and the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had appeared on the earth. No plant had yet sprung up for the Lord hadn't sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and they watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye, good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, verse 10, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there's gold. The gold of that land is good. Uh, aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third is the Tigris. That's one we hear of now. It runs along the east side of Asher. The fourth river is the river Euphrates. Uh, and the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of the Eden, in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. The very first act of God towards the first person that ever lived was to take him and to give him some things to take care of and to say, you're in charge of this. That's called stewardship. Here's some stuff. You're in charge of this stuff. Now, Adam and his wife Eve, they blew it. They were bad stewards, and they messed it all up. Some of us have blown it. You, me, our parents, our grandparents, the company that we worked for, the United States government, for some of us, things have gotten really messed up. But stewardship says, here's some stuff. Now do a good job managing this stuff. In Matthew chapter 25, if you have your Bible, you can flip back to the, to the New Testament. That's kind of the back half of the Bible for those of you who are brand, brand new. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells this, this a story about the same principle. This principle of stewardship. This principle that you've been given some stuff. And most of us in here would say, you know, I need a little more stuff. But we've been given stuff, and the Bible says we're supposed to take care of this stuff. It's this theme of stewardship that I won't dwell this entire message on because my entire message next week, we're going to look at the life of a man named Joseph 
Joseph, more than any other person in the Bible, teaches us how to be an extremely good steward when times are good, when times are bad, how to make sure you, you can get to the end well by just being a good steward. But that's next week. But Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 25, in verses 14 through 29, we, we read again his teachings on, hey, you've been given stuff, make sure you're a good steward. Make sure you manage it well. And here's what Jesus says. Again, uh, it's going to be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who'd received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work, and he gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more, but the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and he hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who'd received the five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. That's a 100% return. We would like this man to, to take care of all of our future retirement uh, for all of us. Verse 21, his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown, gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out, and I hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I haven't sown, and I gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have at least received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given much more, and they will have an abundance, and whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them. You know, let me ask you a question. Because the, the title of our Bible study today, if you look at like the very top of your sermon notes, is perspective. Perspective is how you see things. What, what did that text of Scripture just say to you? What was your heart thinking as you just read through that text of scripture as you heard that parable as i read it this week and as i began to study for the first time here's here's the first thing can i be utterly honest with you to my shame as i read it the first week i got halfway through that and i thought man i'll take a bag of gold that was my very first spiritual thought of the whole thing is yeah i'll do it like i'll take one i i could use a bag of gold yes please sign sign me up i will be right in the middle of this parable thank you you know some of us read that and we get bitter about the one who was given five. Or we get bitter about the one who was given two. Or we look at the one who was given one and we feel like the one who was given. Some of us look at that and all we think about is, is ourself. We see it with the wrong perspective. Here's the whole perspective. Here's the whole point. The main point of this parable, the heart attitude, the, the biblical principle of stewardship, the heart attitude of stewardship is this. I am responsible. You have to be responsible for what God has given you. We read through this and you say, oh, the master, you know, the master didn't treat his servants well. Listen, the principle of stewardship is that the government is not responsible for us financially. President Obama, Governor Romney are not responsible to fix our problems. 
The principle of this, our boss, our company, the principle of this is however much you have, whether it's a lot or a little, you're responsible to manage it well. And don't just sit around wishing you had more, wishing you had less, wondering why he got more, wondering why would you... Just be responsible with what you have. If you had five, if you have one, be responsible with what you have. That's the principle of stewardship. Be responsible. We are responsible for what's going on in our lives financially. And if we don't get the mentality that our problems are not our problems, but they're someone else's to fix, we'll never get ahead financially. We'll never practice good biblical economics, good biblical stewardship. So more on that next week, but you're going to hear me say as we study... You're responsible to take care of yourself in this area, so you better figure out what the Bible says and get a good biblical plan to make sure you do that. I am responsible, the Bible says. The second biblical principle of finances, of money, of what we call biblical economics, is the principle of gratitude. It's this thought that, uh, that we appreciate and understand that we have been blessed with what we have, even if it's only a very little in our eyes or in the world's eyes. And what's really interesting here is how important the attitude of gratitude is, not just the act of looking like we appreciate. In Genesis chapter 4, and I won't make you turn, we're going to flip back and forth a few places here, so I'll just read it. In Genesis chapter 4, we meet Adam and Eve's kids. I just introduced you to Adam and Eve. They kind of messed up with, with what they'd been stewarded. We meet their kids who appear to be in the eyes of a pastor, two great church members. Uh, they love God, they're serving, they're giving. But here's, here's what we read about Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter four, second half of verse two going into verse five. It says, now Abel, two kids, Cain and Abel. Abel kept flocks, so he's a, sh- a shepherd, and Cain worked the soil, so he's, he's a farmer. So you got two brothers, one's a shepherd, one's a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was angry, and his face was downcast. Here's what's really interesting about gratitude um, and applying gratitude to offering. It appears here that when Cain came to church, Cain gave an offering. I mean, we are told Cain brought an offering. Of his own free will, he brought an offering but he brought it with the, right, the wrong attitude. I don't know whether he was mad that he had to give it. I don't know that he was mad that God hadn't given him more, but somewhere his heart was not grateful for what God had done for him versus Abel who, who gladly gave an offering because he really felt like God had blessed him with it. See, it's in the attitude of giving, not just the act of giving. Let me ask you right now, what is your attitude right now October 28, 2012, what is your attitude right now towards your financial position in life? Are you angry? Are you bitter? You like to tell people how how bad that it is, and maybe it's really bad. Are you upset with God? Are you mad at your spouse? Are you mad at a boss that, uh, that lets you go, or an employee who got a raise that you shouldn't have gotten. I mean, right, I mean, be honest with yourself. Right now, what is your attitude right now towards your financial position? If you're an American, in the last four or five years, it's probably been extremely difficult. But the attitude, not the actions, the attitude of the heart is extremely important 
the Bible says, financially. In Genesis chapter 8, we meet a man named Noah. And Noah had just gone through the worst experience I believe any human being could ever go through. Noah had lost everything. Every friend he had ever known. Only his house was gone. Everything he owned was gone. Only his family and some animals survived this flood that God allowed him to survive. And he gets off the ark and everything is gone. His, his favorite McDonald's, where he went to the movies, his home, like where he went and got Redbox at Price Chopper, Starbucks. I mean, like it was all gone. Just everything was gone. And he was probably, he probably didn't even like know where he was. His GPS didn't work. I mean, this was a bad day for Noah, right? And we find out Noah's attitude, after Noah had lost everything, Noah's attitude was one of, of gratitude. It says in Genesis 8.20, one of his first acts after being in a world where he had lost everything, it says he built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed a burning off, burnt offering on it. Noah was in the worst financial position of his life on this day, and he still took a little bit of the little bit that he had left and said, God, thanks for the little bit. You know, I, I picture this through my eyes of experience. You know, in May of 2011, some of you might remember the tornado that hit Joplin, Missouri. Uh, and we were down there, uh, a team of about 20 of us, three days after the tornado had hit. We got special permission to go in before they allowed all the nonprofit groups in because we were working with someone who, who specialized in assisting search and rescue. So we are in the zone where the tornado hit while the cadaver dogs are searching houses and ambulances and fire trucks. So before anyone else was in, we're in. And we're, you know, I think that day we delivered like 25,000 bottles of water and several hundred hot meals to workers who were helping clear stuff. And I'll be honest with you, and I have said this before in this church, that was the first moment in my life where I stood and looked around at what had happened and I didn't have a spiritual answer. I didn't have a Bible verse. I just thought there's, you know, there's nothing that will encourage anyone of, of what's been going on. And I tell people, if, if you didn't get to go uh, and see what had happened, things weren't destroyed, they were gone. I mean, houses didn't get knocked down, they got blown away. They, they were just gone. We went to entire neighborhoods that were just driveways and nothing else. I mean, not a, not a pile of wood, just gone. Just a driveway to grass, just nothing. And as we got in there, several residents that we were given bottle, bottle and, and meals to were there, and they were kind of picking through the remnants. I remember talking to one guy who was in what was left of a garage, and he was pulling out the last of his tools that were there. He's going kind of in the back, and all his tools were kind of scattered. It, you know, and I gave him water, and I was just talking to him, and I just said, I'm, you know, I'm so sorry. And he said, well, at least I've got my life and a few tools. And I thought, you know, that is gratitude. I don't look at what I've lost. I look at what I have, and I say, at least I have a little. I may not have enough, but I can be grateful for what I have. It's interesting. Also, if you look at Genesis chapter 14, and I, I want to point out something real particular about these men. In Genesis chapter 14, we meet a man named Abraham. And Abraham goes to war, and he wins a battle in this war. And it, it, his name was Abram then. It had, hadn't been changed. It's kind of a long story that's not most important to this. And in Genesis 14, 17 through 20, it says, After Abram returned from defeating uh, Kedorlamar, and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shiva, that's the king's valley, 
Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to the God Most High who delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave this king who had helped him, it says, a tenth of everything. Now here's what's interesting about Abel, Noah, and Abraham, who all gave offerings. You know, there are places in the Bible that talk about giving. There are places in the Bible that encourage giving. There are places in the Bible that command giving in some places. But the Bible had not been written yet in these men's life. Abel had never read the Bible. Um, Noah had never read the Bible. Abraham had never read the Bible. You say, why did they give? Because they were grateful for what they had. No one had to tell them to give. Their heart said, man, I'm grateful for what I have. So an attitude of gratitude is going to allow me to not only have, but to see what I have in a good light and, and to give back. What they had was gratitude. The, the biblical principle of gratitude is matched with a heart attitude that says, I'm thankful. And that's why I've asked you where you are today, because you are like, I, listen, there's a lot of days of my life where I'm not thankful for what I have. There's a lot of days in my life where what I have is less than what I need, and instead of being thankful for what I have, I complain about what I need. And God says, listen, before we get into needs, let's get into attitudes. Be thankful for what you have. You know, Dayton Moore, who was here last week, the general manager of the Kansas City Royals, used a phrase that I've never heard in my life. Y'all remember this weird phrase he used about being born in the United States of America? He said, we have all won the ovarian lottery. The egg that held us just happened to be produced and born into the United States of America. Listen, the worst person in here, the person who's the, the worst off, the person who's the most stressed, the person who's the most broken financially in this room is so far ahead of the rest of the world financially. You may not be where you need to be and, and you might need some counsel and some prayer and you might need some God-sized miracles to get where you need to go. But if the heart isn't one of gratitude, you know, I was in a small group a, a few Sunday nights ago and if you're not in a small group, you've got to go to a small group. They're awesome. You'll meet people. You'll grow spiritually. But one of the men who went to Guatemala was there. And he said, you know, I, I had never been on a mission trip. He said, I kind of had a bad attitude about third world countries before I went because, you know, I thought, you know, I, I work hard for what I have and if they would work hard like I work hard, you know, they'd have more. And he said, I went down to Guatemala for a week, and he said, I watched these guys work harder and longer than I worked. And their situation will never be what mine is. They live down the mountain where their drinking water is the three houses up the mountain's uh, sewer water. And, you know, they're going to get a drink the same place that the chickens are taking a bath and the same place that these people have washed their sewage down the hill, and they can work 12 hours a day, seven days a week for the rest of their life, and it's not getting better. And he said, I used to take a lot of credit for what I had, and I realize now God's given me so much just by allowing me to be born where I was born. Gratitude. If you have clean water, if you have access to running water, you know half of the world's population does not have access to clean running water. You're in the upper 50% of those blessed in the world if you have water that turns on and is drinkable. If you have transportation, do you know that 70% of the world walks every place they go? They don't even have a bicycle. 
So if you have like a running car, maybe you have a running car like my car that leaks way too much oil and like you keep a, a, a bottle of 10W40 in your back seat so when it starts redlining, you just fill it up again. Maybe you're driving one of those. You're in the top 30% of those blessed in the world with transportation. If it runs, you are blessed. If you've had education, if you're literate, if you can read and write, you're in the top 25% of all educated people on the globe. If, if you wear glasses or have contacts, you know in seven out of 10 countries in the world, you'd be blind. You would never be able to fix what was wrong. You'd never be able to even see. Gratitude. If you have electricity, in 2007, the Boston Globe did an expansive article on the average wage earner in the world. And they discovered that the average wage earner in the world, so the average pay that people globally, the almost 7 billion people on planet Earth make, is $1,700 a year. $4.50 a day is what the average person in the world makes. So there are times when we need to pray for what we need, and we need to work for what we need, and we need to ask others to pray for what we need. And then there are times to step back and say, well, gosh, look at what I have. It may not be what I need, but what I have puts me in the top 10% of all people that are blessed on this globe. So thank you, Lord. Gratitude. Stewardship and gratitude are probably the biggest two principles to grasp before you can ever fix anything in your world financially. In Genesis 30, 24, we, we meet a young lady named Rachel. Rachel has had fertility problems. Rachel has been to the in vitro doctor. Rachel has tried to adopt. Rachel has even brought in a friend to be a surrogate for her who's having kids on her behalf. I mean, it, this is a crazy story. And then finally, after years and years of begging God, please let me have a baby, God lets her have a baby. And she names the baby, according to Genesis 30, 24, she named the baby Joseph, which means, may the Lord give me another one. The first thing out of her mouth after God answered her lifelong prayer was, can I have one more? You ever had your kids do that to you? Don't you just want to punch them in the face? I mean, you, you do. Like, you know if they told on you, you would go to jail. But you consider it. You know, you take it, man, I'm so proud of you. I'm going to give you $5. They say, how about 10 And you think, how about none? You know, I mean, that's, that's the way that I think about it. So Rachel's lifelong prayers, God, give me a baby. She has a baby, and she says, I'm going to name the baby. God, I need another one. And I'm sure God has to be thinking, you spoiled brat. Listen, there are times to pray for more. And you may be like me where this is a time in your life where you're praying over your personal finance because what you have doesn't match what you need. But don't pray for more until you say thank you for what you have. Gratitude is an attitude of the heart that says, I am thankful. Um, another biblical theme that Scripture presents, and, and this, is, this is where I think most people of our generation, again, under the age of 45, if you are in that generation, really need to deal with is the, the area of contentment. Contentment means being satisfied with what I have and what I've been given and not wanting more and more and more and more and more. Um, you know, there was a documentary done on, on finances uh, in America in the uh, late 90s um, that really highlighted how Americans spend money. It's called Dumb and Dumber. Uh, perhaps you've seen it. Um, and there's this, there's this moment in Dumb and Dumber where um, they, Jim Carrey and his buddy, they lose all this money, so they write IOUs. And they, uh, 
they bought a Lamborghini with an IOU, and they pull up to this ski resort, and, uh, you know, all these IOUs fall out, and he hands someone an IOU for a quarter million dollars. Um, he says, that's not, might want to hang on to that one. There's the, the, they were literally mocking, as you read the backstory on that movie, they were mocking the fact that Americans buy stuff with money they don't have. IOU, we call it credit card. I mean, we don't write IOU on a piece of paper. But that's what, that moment in that movie was to make fun of an American society, American society who buys stuff that they can't afford. And the Bible speaks so strongly against that. However, the person who gave the most information on that didn't even follow his own advice. There's a man named Solomon. Scripture calls him the wisest man, certainly, that lived in his time. And here's what he wrote about contentment spiritually. Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, he said, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I might have too much and disown you and say, Who's the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and dishonor the name of the Lord. Solomon said, Look, I don't want too much because then I won't be dependent on God. I don't want too little because then I might get angry with God. So he's like, Just give me just enough and that'll be cool. In Proverbs 23, 4, uh, Solomon wrote this. Don't wear yourself out to get rich. And I love this verse. If you're a businessman in here working an 80-hour week to try to make more money, just stop and spend more time with your family. Don't wear yourself out to get rich. So Solomon gives us some of the greatest spiritual advice ever. But as we watch his life, he didn't keep it. As a matter of fact, in his memoirs that he wrote before he, he was getting ready to die, his kind of his deathbed diary, we call it the book of Ecclesiastes, here's what he said about how he actually lived his life. So his advice was be content. His life was more, more, more. He said this in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 4 through 11. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks. I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs of water groves, of flourishing trees. Uh, I bought male and female slaves, and I had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasury of the kings and the provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. Uh, I became greater by far than anyone else in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed right there with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was my reward for all my toil. I thought my stuff was the reward for my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, when I looked at all that I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. It was a chasing after the wind. Nothing was truly gained under the sun. See, Solomon's advice was don't pursue things, pursue life. But then his life pursued things, and as he looked back on it, he thought, I blew it. Like, I, didn't, I didn't even follow my own advice. I blew it. I couldn't be content with what I had, so I missed my life pursuing things. He spent his life to get more money, and at the end of his life, he stated that not having contentment was worse than not having money because he blew it. So the heart attitude of contentment says, I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied. Now I'm going to ask you a hard question that I ask myself this week. And man, I, I think I'm still wrestling with this question and this biblical principle of contentment. If you and your spouse never made a penny more than you make right now, if your income leveled off right now, where it is, right now, for the rest of your life, would you be satisfied? Would you be fine with that? Would you thank God for that? Would you rearrange your life to meet that? Or would you feel like you had failed? You know, my parents' generation, my mom and dad are 60. They really pursued the good life. Somehow our generation is pursuing the better life. 
And no matter what it is, we just want a little bit more. You know, I got a, uh, I got a text this morning on the way home from setup from Jody Hankins. And some of you know Tim and Jody Hankins. Tim turned 45 two weeks ago. He's got cancer. They were hoping he'd live till Christmas. And she texted me and said, Christian, they've, uh, they've given Tim two to 14 days. We're going to need you all this week. He stopped eating. They're bringing in hospice. Just pray for us and the kid, he, kids. He's got two teenagers. And I just thought, you know, today, nothing is important but life and health and moments with that family. Not, nothing matters. Not the house they live in, not the cars that they drive, not the career that they have, not the salary that they're bringing in. Nothing matters except the moments of life and health with family. And yet some of us are cursing, are, are ignoring that health and life and moments with family in pursuit of something more. And I just wonder, man, if we had two days to two weeks to live, could we finally settle into contentment? Or would we feel like, man, I wasted a lot of time chasing stuff. It's not even really important. You know, um, way before uh, Edward bit Bella, Bella, is that her name, Bella? The Twilight, you vampire people. Um, maybe the most famous vampire ever is a, guy, is a guy named Mike Tyson. He was biting people way before um, these, like, gl- shiny people came about and started biting people. Um, and he, he, got in a, he, he was in a boxing match with Evander Holyfield back when I was in college. You remember that? And he, he bit his ear off. I mean, like, this dude is crazy. He bit his ear off. Um, and the, the thing I remember about that fight and the fights leading up to that is Evander Holyfield had become real vocal about his faith. And I, I don't know if you can see it in that picture there, but his boxing trunks, if you remember, used to always have the verse Philippians 4.13 on them. Um, and Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that, that was kind of Evander Holyfield. That, that's when I really memorized that verse was when I saw Holyfield wear it on his trunks, fight after fight after fight after fight. And I took that verse to mean like, I can have Mike Tyson bite off my hair and I'll be okay. You know, I, I can do all things through Christ or I can, you know, knock out a crazy man. Um, but that's not what that verse means at all. That verse in context is about contentment, not boxing, not achievement. Here's what Paul said in that verse. Paul said, I have learned to be content whatever my circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. Most of us as Americans, we, we know when it's been good, and we know when it's been bad. And right now, it's probably either one of those. Like We know what that, that feels like. Paul said, I have learned the secret of being content. It's a secret not everyone knows. But boy, when you learn, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. It's a verse of contentment. When I have a job, when I'm unemployed. When I got the promotion, when they gave it to someone who, who didn't deserve it. When my health care costs went up, when they stayed the same. When I lost my house, when I had to downsize on an apartment. When I sold my car and bought... It doesn't, it, Paul's saying this. I've learned that money, at the end of the day, is not as important as my attitude towards money. I've learned the secret of being content. And you know, when you become content you can begin to learn this last biblical 
theme, this last biblical attitude of money, and it's the attitude and the theme of generosity. And this is really, really cool, because in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, um, the Bible tells us that we're created in God's image and in his likeness, which means this, we are like God in a lot of ways. Um, Some of us, or some of the people we work for, might be like the devil in a lot of ways. But the Bible says in Genesis 1 that we we, have, we are created in God's image in his likeness, which means we are like God, which means there, there's things that happen in our life that, that, that God DNA, that G-O-D DNA in us, um, is like, it, it just connects, and it's and like you have a moment. And, and some of these are like, you know, if you've ever watched the perfect sunset or the perfect sunrise, um, like your heart just connects with the beauty of creation, that's that God DNA in you. In Romans 1.20, the Bible says that the, that the world, nature, shows us the attributes of God. If, you've, if you can remember, if you've ever been to the Rocky Mountains, I've only been there once, but I remember the first time I saw them that connected with my God DNA. If, if you've ever seen the ocean, if you've been to the ocean and you've looked out on the expanse of the ocean, it, you know, your heart connects with that God DNA. And it's, you just have moments where you can tell God built you to appreciate that. If you've ever walked outside when, when there's no light and it's just a perfect starry night, if you've ever held like a newborn baby, I thought about it this morning when I saw little Tessa Naomi for the first time. I mean, when you look on a baby that is still like bright pink from the womb, that, that there's something in you that appreciates that God DNA is like, this is the way life is meant to be done. Life is meant to be appreciated. And anytime we see generosity, we connect with that and say, that's the way it's supposed to be. I can't tell you how many people have come to our church and I've had lunch with, I've had dinner with, I've had coffee with, I've had breakfast with, I go hang out with them in their home, our, our kids play sports together, they visit at our church and they say this, when I heard you say, it's why I say it every week, when I heard you say that you give the first 12% of your offerings away to missional causes, it's like, that, that really resonated with my heart. Like we... we like, we feel like that's what churches are supposed to do. A few weeks ago, when I announced that in our first year as a church, we gave away nearly $65,000, people were like, yeah, that, like, the God DNA says, I connect to generosity. That is the right thing to do. Why? Because God is generous. Look at what the Bible says about God's generosity in James 1.5. James says, look, if anybody lacks wisdom, ask God who gives generously to all. Like when you need something, ask God, because God is generous in the way he gives to us. In Acts chapter 20, verse 35, Paul's preaching a message, and Paul says, In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, who said it's more blessed to give than receive. Jesus said it's, it's better to give than receive. If any of you have kids that you've ever given a Christmas present or a birthday present to, you know Christmas morning you could care less about what Santa Claus has brought you. You like to watch your kids open their presents because as a parent, it's always more blessed to give than receive. It's so fun to watch people receive. That's the God DNA in us. In 1 Timothy 6, 17, Paul tells Timothy, who he's mentoring, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in their wealth, because wealth is uncertain, but but, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. See, God is generous. In Philippians 4.19, Paul says, My God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in, in Christ Jesus. See, God is generous towards us. 
And when we begin to accept and begin to live out these biblical themes of giving, here's the hard attitude that we're left with. I'm helping. With what God has given me, I'm helping somebody else. In the next month, we're going to look at these areas of biblical economics. Because listen to me, you can't do one without the other. Um, if you're not good stewards, you'll never be able to take what you have and allow it to be enough, which means you'll never be able to be content, which means you'll never really be thankful because you'll always be in need, which means you can never be generous because you just don't have enough. Or maybe you have way more than everyone else. Maybe you have w w way more than enough, but you don't have an attitude of contentment, so you need a little more so you can never be generous, and, and you can't live a life at the end of the day saying, I I'm helping I'm managing what God has given me. I'm very grateful for what God has given me. I'm going to be content with whatever God wants me to have. Listen, not, do you realize not everyone in here is intended to become a millionaire one day that has their house paid off? Like, are you okay with, with that thought that some of us are going to have to grind it out for the rest of our lives? It's something about that American dreams makes us all entitled to just, you know, go make it. And some of us break it. You know, make it or break it. Some of us are going to end up on that. Are you, are you okay with that? If God's will is for you to just work hard to your dying day and just make, are you okay with that? That's contentment. And then generosity, making a difference. In my opinion, everyone in here can and should increase their spiritual obedience and their spiritual attitudes in one of these four areas or all these four areas. Stewardship, being responsible. Uh, gratitude, being thankful. Contentment, learning to be satisfied. And generosity, learning to help and make a difference. If you can do that, regardless of whether the elephant or the donkey wins, and in a couple weeks, I believe you're, the next four years of your life, you can have more, you can do more, you can give more, and you can be in a position where you think, you know what, the last four years of my life, I finally put it together, and I'm not so dependent on what happens outside of my household to, uh, to really make my path for me, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to do it God's way. Now, here's the next steps on the bottom of your sermon notes that should be there. Um, here's what I want you to do this week when you go home, or maybe tonight with your spouse, or take your wife out on a date. And you say, ah, I don't have money for a date. Go in the basement and, and do it there. Um, <laughs> so I don't have a basement. I live in an apartment. Well, go, you know, go, go outside. You know, don't. Don't have a bad attitude yet. Give me, give me a couple weeks. Um, I want you to grade yourself in each area on a, on a scale of 1 to 10. 10 being the best, 1 being the worst. How's your attitudes? I want you to have a conversation with yourself about these areas of gratitude and contentment. Specifically, stewardship comes around. Generosity is the outflow of doing things right. So just focus this week on gratitude and contentment. And then have a conversation with your spouse. How are we doing here? Because some of you, you're doing really well, and your spouse is making it difficult for you to continue to do well. Some men, some women. If you can get it together as a family, man, you can see really cool things happen spiritually. So this month, one foot in front of the other, living life in every area, marriage, parenting, spiritual growth, spiritual obedience, serving, managing finances, doing it well, so that we can live with God's blessing and God's guidance in every single area of our life. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and your guiding principles scripturally in this area of finances. Because God, my assumption is most of us in this room need to check ourselves on the hard attitudes of stewardship, gratitude, contentment, and generosity. Because it's, it's been a pretty tough go of it. Um, we've all seen the houses for sale. Some of us have sold. Some of us have um, had a home taken. We're spending less. We're using less. We're making less. And Lord, I read the prayer requests that are coming in for jobs, for single parents. Um, Lord, on and on and on for college kids who had to drop out because they couldn't pay tuition or couldn't afford books. I get it. So, Lord, I pray that you'll be with me as, as one of the pastors of our church. First, help me to be extremely sensitive, trustworthy, transparent in this issue of finances. And then, God, I pray that you'll help our people to lean in to say, okay, God, what do you want me to do with, uh, with my finances? How can I align them to get more out of them to receive more of your blessing, to make more of an impact. God, I pray for the men and women in our church who have been abused financially at old churches, have been scarred financially at a previous ministry, feel like they've been taken advantage of, that God, you will protect their heart through this series to see the biblical truth and to put old memories to bed, but to see the biblical truth and Lord to live their life to the fullest in this area as well and God help our church to continue to be a church that organizationally follows these principles of stewardship and gratitude and contentment and generosity so we can leave our mark on this world God I pray for Tim Hankins right now and his wife Jody and for Timmy and Alexis Lord as uh, those two kids spend the last hours with their dad as Jody spends the last few days with her husband who just two weeks ago turned 45. God, I pray your peace that passes understanding on them. Pray for their friends and family who are going to surround them. And God, as, as Tim transitions for this life to the next, I thank you that Jesus is in his heart and in his life, that he's entrusted you with his eternity. And God, I pray that you'll greet him with open arms while continuing to provide every second of every day for the rest of of their life for his wife and his two kids. As a church, help us to do well in ministering to them as they walk through this terrible transition. Now, God, we need you. We love you. Guide our steps every day in every way. And we ask these things in Jesus' name today. And everyone said, amen.